Section 1 of Letters of Pliny by Pliny the Younger Translated by William Melmoth Revised by F. C. T. Bosanquet This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Andrew Coleman Section 1 Letters 1 to 7 Letter 1 To Septitus You have frequently pressed me to make a select collection of my letters if there really be any deserving of a special preference, and give them to the public. I have selected them accordingly, not indeed in their proper order of time, for I was not compiling a history, but just as each came to hand. And now I have only to wish that you may have no reason to repent of your advice, nor I of my compliance. In that case, I may probably inquire after the rest, which at present be neglected, and preserve those I shall hereafter write. Farewell. Letter 2. To Arianus. I foresee your journey in my direction is likely to be delayed, and therefore send you the speech which I promised in my former, requesting you, as usual, to revise and correct it. I desire this the more earnestly as I never, I think, wrote with the same impressment in any of my former speeches, for I have endeavoured to imitate your old favourite Demosthenes, and Calvus, who has lately become mine, at least in the rhetorical forms of the speech, for to catch the sublime spirit is given alone to the inspired few. My subject, indeed, seem naturally to lend itself to this, may I venture to call it, emulation, consisting as it did almost entirely in a vehement style of address, even to a degree sufficient to have awakened me, if only I am capable of being awakened, out of that indolence in which I have long reposed. I have not, however, altogether neglected the flowers of rhetoric of my favourite Mark Tully, wherever i could with propriety step out of my direct road to enjoy a more flowery path for it was energy not austerity at which i aimed i would not have you imagine by this that i am bespeaking your indulgence on the contrary to make your correcting pen more vigorous i will confess that neither my friends nor myself are averse from the publication of this piece if only you should join in the approval of what is perhaps my folly the truth is as i must publish something i wish it might be this performance rather than any other because it is already finished you hear the wish of laziness at all events however something i must publish and for many reasons chiefly because of the tracts which I have already sent into the world, though they have long since lost all their recommendation from novelty, are still, I am told, in request. If, after all, the booksellers are not tickling my ears, and let them, since, by that innocent deceit, I am encouraged to pursue my studies. Farewell. Letter 3 to Voconius Romanus. Did you ever meet with a more abject and mean-spirited creature than Marcus Regulus, 
since the death of Domitian, during whose reign his conduct was no less infamous, though more concealed, than under Nero's. He began to be afraid I was angry with him, and his apprehensions were perfectly correct. I was angry. He had not only done his best to increase the peril of the position in which Rusticus Ariolanus stood, but had exulted in his death, insomuch that he actually recited and published a libel upon his memory, in which he styles him the Stoic's ape, adding, stigmated with the Vitellian scar. You recognise Regulus's eloquent strain. He fell with such fury upon the character of Herennius Senecio that Metius Carus said to him one day, What business have you with my dead? Did I ever interfere in the affair of Crassus's or Camarinus's? Victims, you know, to Regulus in Nero's time. For these reasons, he imagined I was highly exasperated, and so at the recitation of his last piece, I got no invitation. Besides, he had not forgotten, it seems, with what deadly purpose he had once attacked me in the court of the hundred. Rusticus had desired me to act as counsel for Arionilla, Titnon's wife. Regulus was engaged against me. In one part of the case, I was strongly insisting upon a particular judgment given by Metius Modestus, an excellent man, at that time in banishment by Domitian's order. Now then, for Regulus. Pray, says he, what is your opinion of Modestus? You see what a risk I should have run had I answered that I had a high opinion of him, how I should have disgraced myself on the other hand if I had replied that I had a bad opinion of him. But some guardian power I am persuaded, must have stood by me to assist me in this emergency. I will tell you my opinion, I said, if that is a matter to be brought before the court. I ask you, he repeated, what is your opinion of Modestus? I replied that it was customary to examine witnesses to the character of an accused man, not to the character of one on whom sentence had already been passed. He pressed me a third time. I do not now inquire, said he, your opinion of Modestus in general. I only ask your opinion of his loyalty. Since you will have my opinion, then, I rejoined, I think it illegal even to ask a question concerning a person who stands convicted. He sat down at this, completely silenced, and I received applause and congratulation on all sides, that without injuring my reputation by an advantageous, perhaps, though ungenerous answer, I had not entangled myself in the toils of so insidious a catch-question. Thoroughly frightened upon this, then, he first seizes upon Caecilius Keller. Next he goes and begs of Fabius Justus that they would use their joint interest to bring about a reconciliation between us. And lest this should not be sufficient, 
he sets off to Superina as well, to whom he came in the humblest way, for he is the most abject creature alive, where he has anything to be afraid of, and says to him, Do, I entreat of you, call on Pliny to-morrow morning, certainly in the morning, no later, for I cannot endure this anxiety of mind longer, and endeavour by any means in your power to soften his resentment. I was already up the next day, when a message arrived from Spurina. I am coming to call on you. I sent word back, nay, I will wait upon you. However, both of us setting out to pay this visit, we met under Livio's portico. He acquainted me with the commission he had received from Regulus, and interceded for him, as became so worthy a man, in behalf of one so totally dissimilar, without greatly pressing the thing. I will leave it to you, was my reply, to consider what answer to return Regulus. You ought not to be deceived by me. I am waiting for Mauricus's return, for he had not yet come back out of exile, so that I cannot give you any definite answer either way, as I mean to be guided entirely by his decision, for he ought to be my leader here, and I simply to do as he says. Well, a few days after this, Regulus met me as I was at the Praetors. He kept close to me there, and begged a word in private, when he said he was afraid I deeply resented an expression he had once made use of, in his reply to Satrius and myself, before the court of the hundred, to this effect. Satrius Rufus, who does not endeavour to rival Cicero, and who is content with the eloquence of our own day. I answered, now I perceived indeed, upon his own confession, that he had meant it ill-naturedly. Otherwise it might have passed for a compliment. For I am free to own, I said, that I do endeavour to rival Cicero, and am not content with the eloquence of our own day, for I consider it the very height of folly not to copy the best models of every kind. But how happens it that you, who have so good a recollection of what passed upon this occasion, should have forgotten that other when you asked me my opinion of the loyalty of Modestus. Pale as he always is, he turns simply pallid at this, and stammered out, I did not intend to hurt you when I asked this question, but Modestus. Observe the vindictive cruelty of the fellow, who made no concealment of his willingness to injure a banished man but the reason he alleged in justification of his conduct is pleasant. Modestus, he explained, in a letter of his, which was read to Domitian, had used the following expression, Regulus the biggest rascal that walks upon two feet. And what Modestus had written was the simple truth, beyond all manner of controversy. Here, about, our conversation came to an end, for I did not wish to proceed further, 
being desirous to keep matters open until Mauricus returns. It is no easy matter, I am well aware of that, to destroy Regulus. He is rich and at the head of a party, courted by many, feared by more, a passion that will sometimes prevail even beyond friendship itself. But, after all, Ties of this sort are not so strong but they may be loosened, for a bad man's credit is as shifty as himself. However, to repeat, I am waiting until Mauricus comes back. He is a man of sound judgment and great sagacity formed upon long experience, and who, from his observations of the past, well knows how to judge of the future. I shall talk the matter over with him, and consider myself justified either in pursuing or dropping this affair, as he shall advise. Meanwhile, I thought I owed this account to our mutual friendship, which gives you an undoubted right to know about not only all my actions, but all my plans as well. Farewell. Letter 4. To Cornelius Tacitus. You will laugh, and you are quite welcome, when I tell you that your old acquaintance is turned sportsman, and has taken three noble boars. What? you exclaim. Pliny? Even he. However, I indulged at the same time my beloved inactivity, and, whilst I sat at my nets, you would have found me not with boar-spear or javelin, but pencil and tablet by my side. I mused and wrote, being determined to return, if with all my hands empty, at least with my memorandums full. Believe me, this way of studying is not to be despised. It is wonderful how the mind is stirred and quickened into activity, by brisk bodily exercise. There is something, too, in the solemnity of the venerable woods with which one is surrounded, together with that profound silence which is observed on these occasions, that forcibly disposes the mind to meditation. So for the future, let me advise you, whenever you hunt, to take your tablets along with you as well as your basket and bottle, for be assured, you will find Minerva no less fond of traversing the hills than Diana. Farewell. Letter 5. To Pompeius Saturninus. Nothing could be more seasonable than the letter which I received from you, in which you so earnestly beg me to send you some of my literary efforts, the very thing I was intending to do. So you have only put spurs into a willing horse, and at once saved yourself the excuse of refusing the trouble, and me the awkwardness of asking the favour. Without hesitation, then, I avail myself of your offer, as you must now take the consequence of it without reluctance. But you are not to expect anything new from a lazy fellow, 
for I am going to ask you to revise again the speech I made to my fellow townsmen when I dedicated the public library to their use. You have already, I remember, obliged me with some annotations upon this piece, but only in a general way, and so I now beg of you not only to take a general view of the whole speech, but, as you usually do, to go over it in detail. When you have corrected it, I shall still be at liberty to publish or suppress it, and the delay in the meantime will be attended with one of these alternatives. For, while we are deliberating whether it is fit for publishing, a frequent revision will either make it so, or convince me that it is not. Though indeed my principal difficulty respecting the publication of this harangue arises not so much from the composition as out of the subject itself, which has something in it, I am afraid, that will look too like ostentation and self-conceit. For, be the style ever so plain and unassuming, yet as the occasion necessarily led me to speak not only of the munificence of my ancestors, but of my own as well, my modesty will be seriously embarrassed. A dangerous and slippery situation this, even when one is led into it by plea of necessity. For if mankind are not very favourable to panegyric, even when bestowed upon others, how much more difficult is it? To reconcile them to it when it is a tribute which we pay to ourselves or to our ancestors virtue by herself is generally the object of envy but particularly so when glory and distinction attend her and the world is never so little disposed to detract from the rectitude of your conduct as when it passes unobserved and unapplauded for these reasons, I frequently ask myself whether I composed this harangue, such as it is, merely from a personal consideration, or with a view to the public as well. And I am sensible that what may be exceedingly useful and proper in the prosecution of any affair may lose all its grace and fitness the moment the business is completed. For instance, in the case before us, what could be more to my purpose than to explain at large the motives of my intended bounty for first it engaged my mind in good and ennobling thoughts next it enabled me by frequent dwelling upon them to receive a perfect impression of their loveliness while it guarded at the same time against that repentance which is sure to follow on an impulsive act of generosity. There arose also a further advantage from this method, as it fixed in me a certain habitual contempt of money. For, while mankind seemed to be universally governed by an innate passion to accumulate wealth, the cultivation of a more generous affection in my own breast taught me to emancipate myself from the slavery of so predominant a principle and i thought that my honest intentions would be the more meritorious as they should appear to proceed not from sudden impulse but from the dictates of cool and deliberate reflection
I considered, besides, that I was not engaging myself to exhibit public games or gladiatorial combats, but to establish an annual fund for the support and education of young men of good families, but scanty means. The pleasures of the senses are so far from wanting the oratorical arts to recommend them, that we stand in need of all the powers of eloquence to moderate and restrain rather than stir up their influence. But the work of getting anybody to cheerfully undertake the monotony and drudgery of education must be effected not by pay merely, but by a skilfully worked-up appeal to the emotions as well. If physicians find it expedient to use the most insinuating address in recommending to their patients a wholesome, though perhaps unpleasant, regimen, how much more occasion had he to exert all the powers of persuasion who, out of regard to the public welfare, was endeavouring to reconcile it to a most useful, though not equally popular, benefaction, particularly as my aim was to recommend an institution, calculated solely for the benefit of those who were parents, to men who, at present, had no children, and to persuade the greater number to wait patiently until they should be entitled to an honour of which a few only could immediately partake. But as at that time, when I attempted to explain and enforce the general design and benefit of my institution, I considered more the general good of my countrymen than any reputation which might result to myself, so I am apprehensive lest, if I publish that piece, it may perhaps look as if I had a view rather to my own personal credit than the benefit of others. Besides, I am very sensible how much nobler it is to place the reward of virtue in the silent approbation of one's own breast than in the applause of the world. Glory ought to be the consequence, not the motive, of our actions, and although it happen not to attend the worthy deed, yet it is by no means the less fair for having missed the applause it deserved. But the world is apt to suspect that those who celebrate their own beneficent acts perform them for no other motive than to have the pleasure of extolling them. Thus the splendour of an action, which would have been deemed illustrious if related by another, is totally extinguished when it becomes the subject of one's own applause. Such is the disposition of mankind. If they cannot blast the action, they will censure its display. And whether you do what does not deserve particular notice, or set forth yourself what does, either way you incur reproach. In my own case, there is a peculiar circumstance that weighs much with me. This speech was delivered, not before the people, but the decurii, not in the forum, but the senate. I am afraid, therefore, it will look inconsistent that I, who, 
when I delivered it, seemed to avoid popular applause, should now, by publishing this performance, appear to court it, that I, who was so scrupulous as not to admit even these persons to be present when I delivered this speech, who were interested in my benefaction, lest it might be suspected I was actuated in this affair by any ambitious views, should now seem to solicit admiration, by forwardly displaying it to such as have no other concern in my munificence than the benefit of example. These are the scruples which have occasioned my delay in giving this piece to the public, that I submit them entirely to your judgment, which I shall ever esteem as a sufficient sanction of my conduct. Farewell. Letter six to Atreus Clemens. If ever polite literature flourished at Rome, it certainly flourishes now, and I could give you many eminent instances. I will content myself, however, with naming only Euphrates the philosopher. I first became acquainted with this excellent person in my youth, when I served in the army in Syria. I had an opportunity of conversing with him familiarly, and took some pains to gain his affection, though that indeed was not very difficult, for he is easy of access, unreserved, and actuated by those social principles he professes to teach. I should think myself extremely happy if I had as fully answered the expectations he, at that time, conceived of me, as he exceeds everything I had imagined of him. But perhaps I admire his excellencies more now than I did then, because I know better how to appreciate them, not that I sufficiently appreciate them even now, for as none but those who are skilled in painting, statuary, or the plastic art can form a right judgment of any performance in those respective modes of representation, so a man must himself have made great advances in philosophy before he is capable of forming a just opinion of a philosopher however as far as i am qualified to determine euphrates is possessed of so many shining talents that he cannot fail to attract and impress the most ordinarily educated observer he reasons with much force acuteness and elegance and frequently rises into all the sublime and luxuriant eloquence of plato his style is varied and flowing and at the same time so wonderfully captivating that he forces the reluctant attention of the most unwilling hearer for the rest a fine stature a comely aspect long hair and a large silver beard circumstances which though they may probably be thought trifling and accidental contribute however to gain him much reverence there is no affected negligence in his dress and appearance his countenance is grave but not austere and his approach commands respect without creating awe distinguished as he is by the perfect blamelessness of his life he is no less so by the courtesy and engaging sweetness of his manner. 
he attacks vices, not persons, and, without severity, reclaims the wanderer from the paths of virtue. You follow his exhortations with rapt attention, hanging as it were upon his lips, and even after the heart is convinced, the ear still wishes to listen to the harmonious reasoner. His family consists of three children, two of which are sons, whom he educates with the utmost care. His father-in-law, Pompeius Julianus, as he greatly distinguished himself in every other part of his life, so particularly in this, that though he was himself of the highest rank in his province, yet among many considerable matches he preferred Euphrates for his son-in-law, as first in merit, though not in dignity. But why do I dwell any longer upon the virtues of a man whose conversation I am so unfortunate as not to have time sufficiently to enjoy? Is it to increase my regret and vexation that I cannot enjoy it? My time is wholly taken up in the execution of a very honourable, indeed, but equally troublesome employment, in hearing cases, signing petitions, making up accounts, and writing a vast amount of the most illiterate literature. I sometimes complain to Euphrates, for I have leisure at least to complain, of these unpleasing occupations. He endeavours to console me by affirming that, to be engaged in the public service, to hear and determine cases, to explain the laws, and administer justice, is a part, and the noblest part too, of philosophy, as it is reducing to practice what her professors teach in speculation but even his rhetoric will never be able to convince me that it is better to be at this sort of work than to spend whole days in attending his lectures and learning his precepts. I cannot therefore but strongly recommend it to you, who have the time for it, when next you come to town, and you will come, I dare say, so much the sooner for this, to take the benefit of his elegant and refined instructions, for I do not, as many do, envy others the happiness I cannot share with them myself. On the contrary, it is a very sensible pleasure to me, when I find my friends in possession of an enjoyment from which I have the misfortune to be excluded. Farewell. Letter 7. To Fabius Justus. It is a long time since I have had a letter from you. There is nothing to write about, you say. Well then, write and let me know just this. That there is nothing to write about. Or tell me in the good old style. If you are well, that's right, I am quite well. This will do for me for it implies everything. You think I am joking? Let me assure you, I am in sober earnest. Do let me know how you are, for I cannot remain ignorant any longer without growing exceedingly anxious about you. Farewell.
End of section one.